The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. your heart is not hard and your eyes are not dry and your prayers are not cold and your faith is not old otherwise that just about means all of us doesn't it my eyes are dry my eyes are dry faith is old my faith is old heart is hard my heart is hard my prayers are cold, my prayers are cold, and I know how, and I know how I ought to be, I ought to be alive to you, alive to you, and dead to me. before him the Lord says draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double minded mourn, weep, be miserable let your laughter be turned into mourning your joy into gloom pour the anointing of God out upon all of us God so that we can be a pleasing people
specifically about them. Raise your hand up. Specifically about them. Be honest. Glory to God. As we sing this next song together, I'd like those people to open the curtains so we have more room down here, please. like those of you that feel you need to come and commit your life to Jesus as Lord, possibly for the first time in your life. Those of you who have not been living a right life before God. You've had bitterness in your heart. You've had sin on your hands. And God wants you to come to the fountain and wash it clean. Yes. In true repentance, true faith, and true holiness. Come to a holy God and become a holy people. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I want you, I want us to know Jesus. I was in college where I was studying undergraduate degree in theology. And one day as I was walking through the religion center where the classes were held. I happened by a classroom where there was a lecture going on. And something in the tone of the the professor caught me. And I stopped just outside of the door in the hall, and I began to listen. And this man began to speak about Jesus in a way I'd never heard anyone talk about Jesus before. I was overwhelmed to the point of tears. Then they came to the end of the lecture, and I moved on with my day. After I graduated from seminary, and I was at my first church, a major church, I had started in small churches in western Pennsylvania, Du Bois, Punxsutawney, Clearfield. But now I was in the city. I was sent to a a very fine church. And I gave my first sermon. And at the conclusion of the sermon as was the custom in that fellowship, in that denomination, I went and stood at the door to greet people as they exited the church. And of course, everyone wanted to meet the new pastor. 
so there was a long line of people waiting to speak with me. And a tall, bald-headed old man came in the line. I learned later that he was a very prosperous business owner. He took one of my hands in both of his hands, and he looked me directly in the eye, and with tears coming down his face, he said to me, Pastor, please tell us about Jesus. Well, I was a little bit set back because I had just preached my finest sermon, but it was obvious from his perspective I had not adequately spoken about this man, Jesus. I knew he was right. And later that afternoon as I was praying about what had happened, I recognized and remembered that college experience where I had listened to Dr. Minchin speak about Jesus. And I finally had to face the fact that I really did not know Jesus. I knew a great deal of theology. I knew church history. I knew Greek. I knew Hebrew. I knew the academics, but I didn't know Jesus. I had read the church fathers. I'd read countless and owned countless theological volumes. I had a very large library, but I didn't know Jesus. I want us to know Jesus. And for that reason, I'm going to take some time to carefully, slowly walk with you through New Testament scriptures to talk about Jesus, who he was, what he did, and what he now wants from us what he is expecting from us. Because I want you to know Jesus. I want him to be your Lord and your Savior, but not in an institutional sense. I want you to know him as a person. I want you to be in Jesus. I want you to be in the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, yesterday was a surprise when I went to the the post office. I found a wonderful gift. David Burkott, two volumes, and a wonderful church hymnal called Hymns of the Church many Anabaptist holiness sims. Thank you, whoever sent that to me. There was no name. It was just marked a gift. Pastor Ray. Thank you. One of the volumes is entitled Secrets of the Kingdom Life. I've begun reading it carefully. I'll have more to say about it later. But today, it's about Jesus and his kingdom, for he has a kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to begin taking time to talk about you, and I don't want to talk about you if you're not present. I want you to be very much a part of this conversation. I want 
Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to each listener, that you would move on their heart with such power that they would know you, that they would be transformed by what is said because the words are your words and it's your power and it's your love. Lord, please come now by your spirit and give me the words, the God words to speak that we could lift you up, Jesus, that we could praise you and honor you that you would be everything for us. I pray in your holy name, in the name of Jesus, by your blood. Amen. Well, let's begin in Colossians. I'm going to simply read for you what the Apostle Paul has to say about who Jesus Christ is. You notice I did not say who Jesus Christ was. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I want to speak about Jesus in the present tense. I'll begin in Colossians, the first chapter, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the removal of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's clear in this statement in Colossians, the first chapter, that Jesus is the eternal God of heaven. He is a part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was not created. He has been existent through all eternity. And we were alienated from him. We were enemies in our minds because of evil behavior. But now he has reconciled us by his physical body through death to present you holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. I'll put it another way that will trouble some of you. He has made it possible and obligatory to walk without sin before God. Now read the entire book of Colossians. And then we're going to go over here into the book of Revelation. 
Now, the reason I want to go to the book of Revelation is because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the risen Lord after the experience of being a man on the earth, after his experience of walking the dusty roads of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, after he was crucified, after he was risen and ascended to the Father. Now he comes back to speak specifically to the church. All of Revelation is to the church. It's not to the world. It's not to men and women walking in sin and rebellion. It's not to the half-converted. It is for the righteous church. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He sent a messenger or an angel to John. Angel in the Greek simply means messenger. Jesus is the messenger and the message. He specifically now wants to address the seven churches in the province of Asia. Seven is the number of perfection. This is the message that he will send to all of the churches throughout the time until he comes in the clouds of glory to redeem to himself a people who have made a covenant by sacrifice to belong to Jesus. He begins, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is John, the apostle, the apostle of love. He is writing this. He is being given these messages. to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You notice even the New International Version, which is not a good version, it's the one I'm reading from. I won't use the new ones. They're even much worse. The message is that God, through Jesus Christ, loves us and that he has freed us from our sins. And it was done by his blood. He has not just forgiven us for our sins, for if I forgive a person, I write off their debt to me, but there is nothing regenerative. There is nothing healing. There is nothing that happens to the person who has incurred the debt. I simply wipe out the debt, but I haven't changed that person. They'll go and they'll commit the same sin against someone else. I have a man. I loaned him $5,000 many years ago. He has never repaid that debt. I know he will never repay it. And I have forgiven him. I no longer hold that he owes me that $5,000. I have forgiven the debt. But I know that he has since then gone to many others. And he has borrowed more money from them. In other words he continues to commit the same sin time after time, even though I forgave him for the $5,000 debt. The Apostle John is saying here, we are loved by Jesus. He has not simply forgiven us for our sins. He has 
freed us from our sins so that we no longer walk in these sins. And he did this by the power of his blood. Hebrews, the ninth and 10th chapter, you find that the blood of Jesus Christ is not like the blood of bulls and goats that simply causes your sin to be covered over. No, rather, the blood of Jesus Christ sets us free. It removes that sin. He has made us to be a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and priests with authority to serve his God and Father. Verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. In both Daniel and Zechariah, we find that every eye will see Jesus. This is not a New Testament alone concept. Then Jesus begins to speak. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is saying, I am before all things, and I am after all things. I am the beginning, and I am the end. It is the Lord God who is saying this. It is Jesus. And he says, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Now, John begins to speak once more. He says, I'm your brother, and I'm, I'm your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was there on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit. And I heard a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, biblical scholars have looked at this in two different ways. The first, they have looked at it as seven individual church messages, and every message has a bearing for us today. Secondly, many biblical scholars have looked at this as being a representation of the time until the end, with Laodicea being the church of the last day. The scriptures don't tell us which one or both are correct. Now John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I want to stop a moment. There are references in other portions of Scripture that speak about these lampstands. If you look with me at Matthew, the fifth chapter, I'll begin reading for you in the Sermon on the Mount at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In other words, he's saying to you who are followers of mine, you are the salt. You have bite against the powers of darkness. If the salt loses its bite, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And salt in that day was 
often a very low quality of salt. It had impurities in it. And if it sat for a time, it could completely lose its saltiness. And at that point, it was simply thrown out. It could not be rejuvenated. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now let's identify what's being said. That every individual person who follows Jesus Christ is a lamp. And a lamp must have fire, or it is dark. And the light that we bear is the light of the presence of the Holy Spirit giving testimony about Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit was to reveal to us Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John speaks about this work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin to the world, but to teach us everything that Jesus wanted us to know, that there were things we were not prepared to hear as the disciples walked with him. But he said the Holy Spirit would come and teach them. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I want you to notice that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is saying the same thing he's now going to say in the book of Revelation that there must be actions that reveal the light of God burning in our lives. It's not simply a matter of personal piety, although that is a key part. There must be actions taken that demonstrate before the world that we are not of the world. We're in the world, but we are not of the world, Jesus said. And we've been sent into the world in the same manner that the Father sent Jesus into the world. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is you in Christ Jesus that is the hope of glory. So if we're going to know Jesus, we're going to have to be in him, and he's going to have to be in us in order for a union to take place between our hearts and his heart. Now, as we go back to the book of Revelation and these lampstands, listen. I turned, verse 12, Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Jesus is the son of man. His favorite title for himself was son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Remember, this is John, the apostle who loved Jesus, and he does not recognize Jesus. 
He is overcome with fear. He placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now John knew knows who he's talking with. He's talking with his Lord, with his master. He's talking with Jesus. And Jesus said, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers or pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so now the lampstand is being identified as the entire church. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, it was the individual person. The church had not yet been formed. But now we're post-Pentecost. And now the church is to be identified as the body of Jesus upon the earth. And it is a lamp to be burning with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to stop and pick up one piece that I moved over very quickly. It is this. And I spoke yesterday about a great sense of dread that came upon me as I began my 11 days of rest in Jesus. And what brought such terror to my heart was the story of Noah and the millions or perhaps billions of men, women, and children who were all destroyed because of their corruption and their sin. But what that opened the door for me to see was that once more, the earth now has over 7 billion people on it, most of whom, but by the grace of God, are going to die. But this time they're going to die. They're going to be executed by the hand of Jesus himself. That gives me pause for thought. We have painted Jesus as we have spoken of Jesus as as love. And First John tells us that God is love. But he is not permissive love. A question has just been asked. I'm going to answer it quickly. You can go on YouTube and you can ask questions on the chat line. If I can, I'll answer those questions. Why doesn't it say instead of being the image of God, if if not rather not being God? Well, in the Greek, the word image literally means the exact representation that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one. And they are all in the exact image of one another. But Jesus became also a man. And John the Apostle is trying to let us know that in his becoming a man, fully man and fully God, he did not sacrifice any of his godhood. He is yet omnipresent omniscient, he is fully God. So 
He is God. Now, I want to go back to this question of the sword. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Word of God is more than simply the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter. So literally, we could read this for Jesus is living and active, and he is sharper than any double-edged sword. He penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from Jesus. He is the Word of God. Now, I believe that the Bible is also the Word of God because it is the message that Jesus has brought to us. All of Scripture was given by inspiration. The Scriptures are authoritative. authoritative. It is the standard by which we judge all of our actions and beliefs. But let's be clear that Jesus is the Word of God. Now, I want you to come back to this issue of the sword because it says that coming out of his mouth is a sharp, double-edged sword. The Word is spoken. The Word is in flesh. The Word is God. The Word is Jesus. But he uses that terminology of a sharp, double-edged sword as an instrument to divide bone and marrow. He uses the terminology of the sword to get right to the very core of the being to determine whether or not you are entirely given over to him, whether you know him, whether you dwell in him, and whether he dwells in you. And the sword is to to divide you out. My mother was in charge of a bacteriology lab in a local hospital in Sharon, Pennsylvania, when I was a boy. And she had to do sections. She would come home and talk about using the sharp knife to cut apart some piece of organ or flesh so that the pathologist could discern whether there was cancer. And she complained to my dad about the lack of sharpness in the knife she had to use for the dividing. And he said, don't worry, bring it home to me and I'll sharpen it for you. And so dad sharpened the the section knife. He had one way of testing it. He would hold a hair up from his head. And if he could just drop that knife on that hair and cut through the hair, he knew he had a sharp knife. 
Well, this sword is both a sword to divide and determine if there is cancer in our soul, sin. It is also used for judgment. I want to share that with you as well. We will find in the messages to the seven churches that Jesus will talk about using that sharp sword to bring judgment upon God's house. But we also find in the book of Revelation, in the 19th chapter, I'll begin reading with verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Obviously, Jesus is the one who is faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. With justice, he uses the sword of the Spirit to cut apart the sections to determine whether or not there is cancer in that section. So he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head many crowns. He has a name written on him, too, that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, if you look up above in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I want you to note again, there is direct action involved in dressing in the white robe of Christ's righteousness. It's not a matter of Jesus wrapping up a filthy woman or man in a white robe and covering over the filth. No, that filth has to be washed away by the water and the blood and made clean. Now it says, The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. In other words, they are righteous before God. They are not walking in any sin before him. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. We're going to return to that in depth as we study who Jesus Christ really is. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Well, we're out of time for today. We're going to pick this study up tomorrow. We're going to talk about who this Jesus is. We're going to talk about his kingdom. And we're going to talk about whether or not we know Jesus. We're going to talk about being made righteous. The word justified literally means to be made righteous in the Old English. So we're going to walk through this in great detail and slowly. We're going to go through each of the letters to the seven churches. And we're going to hear what Jesus has to say to us. I treasure what you believe and what you say, but not nearly the way I treasure what Jesus has to say and what his word is. Now, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. You're welcome to come and fellowship with us on Sunday morning at 10 go to the webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can find all of the information there. You're also welcome to give online. And I thank those of you who have given. I just wrote the check today for WAVA to cover the cost of the broadcast for the month of May. We're working now on the month of June. I am so grateful I was able to pay the amount in full and that we have not gone into debt. I pray that you have clearly heard. And I do want to say, you are welcome to make any comments you choose on the chat line. I'll answer those that I can. But I'm going to continue with a very straight message. Our address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I hope you hear today that Jesus loves you, and I hope you hear that I love you. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.